Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I will be in dialogue with Professor Ari Finkelstein. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Judaic Studies at the University of Cincinnati. Ari, it's an honor to be in your presence today. Thank you for your availability, and thank you for being with me. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, to begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today and inspired your scholarly journey? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Toronto, Canada, um, where I went. I attended Jewish day schools and, you know, really... Um, I enjoyed Jewish studies, but also history, general history, uh, particularly ancient history. Um, so I was always interested in pursuing sort of higher education, although um, I started off as a lawyer because <clears throat> I also had interest there, uh, but found that I didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, one of the things, one of the schools that I went to was a, a, a labor Zionist day school. Um and uh, I grew up, you know, quite strongly um, Zionist. Um, and so that drew me to Israel. Um, that drew me to Israel. And it drew me, I think, in a large part to the, to the temple, uh, to the second temple period. Um, uh, I had also been involved in the Bible contest. So I was, you know, interested in the first temple that took me to the second temple. Um, and that's really where I sort of started my journey in this in this field with Second Temple Jewish Studies, which led me to the to Julian and the Third Temple. Um, we almost uh, nearly finished building a Third Temple in the fourth century CE, um, and that led me to this book. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, as I said, I think the uh, the what I was most interested in initially was the temple, um, but I, you know, I became particularly interested in Julian himself, Emperor Julian, uh, the fourth century uh, nephew of Constantine the Great, um, you know, third in that line of emperors um, after Constantius II, Constantine's son had taken over. Uh, Julian rebelled, and then Constantius II. Um, died before they actually met in battle. Um, and what I look when I I noticed what Julian was doing, he was, you know, he was uh, called Julian the apostate, right? Because he apostatized from Christianity, uh, became a particular kind of pagan, a Neoplatonic pagan, and he wanted to fashion the empire in a certain way. And I was interested in, you know, why he was going to build this Jewish temple. And what I noticed was how um, the temple was really, uh, rebuilding the temple was really about uh, undermining Christianity. Um, and then the other thing that I noticed, which was really quite new, is how he was modeling uh, behavior for pagans, right? He wanted pagans to behave in ways that Jews behaved, right? He was looking for allies to engage in sacrifice and Julian was very much interested in sacrifice, um, and he looked to the Jews who had a temple, um, and um, build, rebuilding the temple was part of his efforts to, you know, re-energize the sacrificial world, which was waning in that period. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? I would say that you know there are two sort of central themes. I think one is. Um, Julian's effort to construct uh, Jews and Judaism in a way uh, to undermine Christianity and what effect that had on ultimately the growth of Christianity and the um, anti-Jewish sort of animus within uh, Christianity, which was, I mean, obviously there in the, in the New Testament, but really takes off um, as a result uh, of the 
um, attempt by Christianity to to create a Christian orthodoxy. Um, and that Christian orthodoxy was very much influenced, I believe, by Julian, who um, used who used Jews against Christians, and therefore Christians had always seen Jews as a sort of um, this defunct people, you know, former um, former beneficiaries of the covenant who are now no longer in a temple or now a defunct religion. And he turned Jews into this very real danger. And that was done on the backdrop of a, um, a Christian a, a, a scene of many Christianities, many of which were uh, Christians who kept Jewish law. So he turned right Christianity in on, on itself using Jews to do it. That was one thing. So that was um, his construction of, uh, of Judaism in order... Uh, in a way that would sort of weaponize Jews against Christians. And also his construction of Judaism uh, uh, in a way that would strengthen his Hellenistic, his Neoplatonic Hellenistic campaign um, to model behavior for pagans in the empire. Um, and Jews, as I said before, were uh, one among, you know, one people that uh, had a temple engaged in sacrifice, right? And could be used as models for how he wanted pagans to behave. Can you tell us about Ju Julian's predecessors, Constantine the Great, Constantine the Great, and Constantius the Second? How did Constantine the Great and Constantius the Second, his predecessors, set the stage for Julian's reign and policies? Can you contextualize Julian the Apostate vis-a-vis -vis his antecedents? Antecedents, yes, um, absolutely. So the beginning of the fourth century was a time that you know there had been the great persecution of Christianity, um, and Christianity had become a real threat to the to a pagan Roman Empire. Um, and maybe I should say something about that too, right? That's that was a pagan world, right? Um, that understood that it's the Roman Empire understood its success uh, as um, all of the different deities of the empire being worshipped. Um, and in turn, those deities would bestow their beneficence on the empire um, and guarantee its success. And Christianity, right, so it was based on a number of different peoples, Christianity was eating away at the Roman Empire and this view of the Roman Empire because it was taking people away from their ethnic uh, religions, right? And we can query the use of religion a little bit, but their ethnic ways of worship, right? Um, and thereby weakening, right, the Roman Empire, which sort of precipitated the per the persecution of Christians. Um, Constantine comes along and says, "If you can't be an abjoinant, <laughs> that's yeah." You know, um, I'm not saying he didn't have any uh, belief in, in in Christianity itself, but he turns to Christianity and says, "You know what? This is going to the basis of Christian understanding of the of God, right? Of, of, of the gods, but God now is going to what's going to be what governs the empire, and um, we need to worship this God, right? Christian God or God, um, in a way that will, you know, guarantee the beneficence of the Roman Empire." Constantius bought into the same sort of idea. I should say one more thing about Constantine is that's part of, right, or a major part of why, right, Christian creeds, right, dogma is developed uh, so strongly in the fourth century. It's Constantine who sponsors the Council of Nicaea to come up with a um, correct understanding of God, right? And this was necessary for the Roman Empire for the success of the Roman Empire, because you you want to make sure that you have the correct understanding, right, conception, and therefore the correct worship of that god. But Constantius II buys into it, except he doesn't have the same view of God, of the Christian God, that his father had, right? He accepts, right, uh, or believes that this other figure, Arius, right, who believes in 
a slightly different version of the Christian God. God, Jesus is uh, created by God and is the Son of God versus the Nicene Creed, which saw, you know, it just becomes the Catholic Creed of, um, you know, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost being of the same substance. Now, where does Julian fit into this? Right? Julian is asking the same questions, right, that um, his predecessors are asking. But he believes that the, that this Christianity is destroying the empire, right? The Christian that the Christian understanding of the heavens of God, right, is mixed up, right? Um, and so he goes to uh, turns to something called Neoplatonism for his understanding of the correct vision of God, um, and, um, and and tries to remake the empire back into a pagan empire, a specific kind of paganism, I say based on uh, theurgic Neoplatonism, but um, that will, again, though, the point is, how do you guarantee, right, that the gods will bless the Roman Empire and guarantee the success and health of the Roman Empire? He's engaged in the same sort of quest, right, um, but has a very, comes to a very different conclusion. Did that answer your question? That was superb. What does your book teach us about Jewish-Christian relations in late antiquity? Um, good question. Well, uh, my book focuses on Antioch. Antioch is a special city in the Roman Empire, right? After Constantinople, Rome, right? And uh, Alexandria, Antioch is now is become the fourth is the fourth largest city. It's a multicultural city. In the Roman Empire, it really links the East. It's in the East, right? It's in what's becoming Byzantium, right? Um, after Constantine, um, with the West. Um, but the other thing about it is, it, is that it has a, a large Jewish community, um, and it has a large, very large Christian community, obviously. Um, that, and a number of different. Christian groups that keep Jewish law, venerate Jewish, you know, the Bible, Jewish institutions like the synagogue, right? Celebrate festivals with Jews, um, or Jewish festivals with Jews, right? Um, that that see Christianity as being far, you know, more tied to their Jewish past than what I will call Gentile Christianity. Uh, and that is um, indicative of probably a number of different Christian groups in the East, in the Eastern Empire. Um, and so what you see sort of hinted at in Julian, but really comes out in the work of John Chrysostom, is that Jews and Christians, or particularly the porous nature of boundaries between Judaism and Christianity, particularly for Christians keeping Jewish law, going to synagogue, listening to Jewish leaders, right? Setting their, sometimes even their um, calendar, according to uh, Jewish leaders. Um, you see far more cooperative, um, interactive, and uh, positive relations between Jewish and Christians in a place like Antioch, right? Um, and that, you know, really changes by the late, it starts to change in the late fourth century, um, but it's a process that takes place over time. And you know, one of the things that I'm arguing is, although uh, really in the conclusions to my book, is that Julian has a major impact on the Christian reaction, right, to this danger within among their own flocks. It's an internal issue, right, among Christians, right. How much Right. If you're creating an orthodoxy, how much Jewish um, traders, law, institutions, right, leaders are we going to accept in Christian orthodoxy? And um, uh, the particular I call we'll call it proto-Catholicism uh, that really takes off in the 380s with the uh, Emperor Theodosius the first, who pretty much declares it uh, this this. Proto-Catholicism as right orthodoxy in Christianity really tries to eliminate all kinds of heretical movements. Among them, 
right? These Jewish Christian groups, right? And one of the ways that you do that is by demonizing Jews, um, changing the perspective in order to change the perceptions of Christians about Jews and their Jewish path and their Jewish connection. You write as follows on page 135. Altogether, Julian's arguments about Jewish sacrifice would have raised anxieties among Orthodox Christian leaders because it highlighted the efficaciousness of Jewish law to their flocks and to the Christian populace who already looked upon Jews as authentic purveyors of their Hebrew past and therefore weakened Christianity's claim to be the quote-unquote true Israel by linking present Jewish practice with biblical prescriptions and, more importantly, later on with patriarchal sacrifice, Julian dislodges Eusebius's attempt to link Christians with the patriarchs and unmoors them from any claim of ethnic belonging. Julian hoped to raise doubts in the minds of Christians about whether they were the true Israelites. This doubt was the flame which Julian nurtured and hoped would consume Christianity once he finished building the temple in Jerusalem. By making this argument, Julian also waded into a Christian debate over its response to the Jewish sacrificial tradition. Aside from the Chilists, all Christians seem to have rejected the Jewish cult of sacrifice and the priesthood. Even the homilies in the pseudo-Clementine literature polemicizes against the Jerusalem temple and its priesthood. There, Aaron is condemned as a false prophet, while Moses and Israel are distanced from the temple and sacrifice. Both the homilies and the didascalia denounce all sacrifice and reject portions of the Bible which describe the power of animal blood to atone. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? Sure, there's a lot going on here. Um, so let me go back to what I something I said before, just to frame it a little bit. Remember that the Roman world prior to Christianity, right, prior to you know uh, Constantine, understood itself to be a group of different ethne, right, different peoples within the empire, right, um, right. They all had certain things in common, right. They had a god a way of uh, worshiping that God, certain laws. Um, they had a temple um, and uh, most of them, they mostly sacrificed, right? And one way of worshiping their God was mostly sacrifice. Along comes Christianity, right? Doesn't have initially, right? Doesn't have a temple, doesn't have even really a land, right? Um, what are they doing? They're taking people, right, out of their own ethnic groups, out of their own ways of worshiping uh, their gods, and really changing, right, the face of the empire. Okay, and they're successful at it. Um, but one weakness that Christians have, and Julian is trying to exploit this, right? One weakness that Christians has have is that they are not an ethnic group, right, or Right? They, what are they exactly? Are they Jews? Right? Are they? They're all from all these other peoples. They don't have a land. They don't have a temple. They don't. Right? So Christians are sort of out of place. Along comes Eusebius. Okay, beginning of the fourth century. Right, um, and he tries to sort of answer this this problem that Christians have. Right? It's not the first, but he's he's more effective at it. Right, um, and he's living at the same time as Constantine. Constantine the Great, uh, before and during his reign. And he says, who are we Christians? We are the true Israel, right? Right. We are, uh, we are, um, we are the inheritors of God's covenant. We are the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Even if we're not by, you know, corporeally the, the children of them, right? We are, we inherit them in every other way. So we're the true Israel, we're Hebrews, right? Right. Um, Jews are those people who, uh, you know, lost the ways of their forefathers when they went down to Egypt and they, you know, they received the, 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 law, the law of Moses, 
you know, much of which is right, stuff, stuff related to sacrifice, was all designed towards keeping them on the straight and narrow, not because something that they really needed to keep them on the straight and narrow, right? Um, so there's no need for a temple, right? There's no need for sacrifice or at least blood sacrifice, right? Sacrifice, sacrifice by the way, for Christians, which I explained in this passage, is the Eucharist, right? That's a that's what they argue is the true form of sacrifice, right? Um, and that's Eusebius, right? He's arguing also that Jews are a defunct people. They no longer have a temple. They can't keep their ancestral laws anymore, right? Um, anything connected, right, with the temple is no longer applicable. And he also makes the argument, you know, that they're not they really can't keep Passover anymore because they need to keep it in Jerusalem. Well, we, we can argue with that, right? Uh, but that's Deuteronomy, right? According to Deuteronomy, Exodus shows otherwise. But um, right, you can't keep a number of festivals. You can't really keep the uh, Day of Atonement without the temple. You can't really keep right any of the other major holidays of Sukkot or Tabernacles and Shavuot or Pent uh, Pe uh, Pentecost, right, without the temple, right? Uh, even. Uh, the Sabbath, which you're supposed to sacrifice, you can't really keep that either, right? So Jewish laws that defunct Jews are a defunct people, right? We are the true Israel. We Christians are the true Israel. Along comes Julian, right? And right, and he is altering the picture, right? He calls the Christians Galileans. Why does he call them Galileans? Because they start off in the Galilee, right? What's the Galilee? The Galilee is a region within, right, Judea, which has now become Palestine. It was never a land of its own, right? These aren't really, an, this isn't really any kind of ethnic group. They don't fit into the empire, right, uh, that I'm constructing, or they never, they never really did, right? Um, oh, and by the way, those Jews, those Jews, they still have, they still keep their laws. They're still able to keep their laws. And you know what? They, 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 they're not able to sacrifice in public because they don't have a temple, right? Which he's aiming to fix, right? He's going to rebuild the temple, right? But they do sacrifice in private. That's an astounding claim, right? That he makes there. What's he mean? Right. And I speculate on that. Look, um, he's probably referring to Jewish ritual slaughter, right? And there are blessings related to it. And, and there's also, uh, according to right, you, you're also supposed to give the uh, pieces of that sacrifice, the choice pieces, to priests. Right? Uh, right? So he's saying that they're still doing this. They're they are perfectly able to keep law. They're not a defunct people. This is part of the reason, right? That he's making Jews so scary to Christians, right? What do you mean they're not a defunct people? Then who are we, right? Right. If they're, if they're Israel, who are we, right? That, that's sort of the debate that he's getting into. And by the way, Julian says, that sacrifice that you do, that Eucharist thing that you do, that's not a sacrifice. So he's really, what he's doing is, he's contesting Christian identity. He is, uh, by, by you know, re-characterizing uh, and showing that Jews are still alive, dynamic people. Right, and he's going to rebuild their temple, right? Which is going to um, undermine. What's it going to undermine? It's going to undermine Jesus' prophecy that it would never be rebuilt. Uh, it's going to undermine the argument that Jews, that Jewish practice is invalid. It's going to cast doubt on Christian leaders' interpretation of the text, right? That uh, because you know what is this Eucharist compared to the sacrifice in the temple, right? Um, and we know also, by the way, that early Christians did go to the temple, right? And ones in Jerusalem in the area did go to the temple and sacrifice. So, um, you know, this is a pretty strong argument that Julian is making, right? All that all Christians need to do is look, right, at Jews, right? They are, especially the Christians in Antioch, look at the Jews, right? We know they have a dynamic uh, religion. Don't listen to the, your Christ, uh, Christian leaders who say otherwise. You, you you even see them probably keeping ritual slaughter, 
Uh, you know that they still engage in sacrifice some kind of way. And by the way, I'm going to rebuild the temple <laughs> and, and really undermine, and they're going to change Christian perceptions towards Jews. And it's not going to have to do, you know, do it that radically because there are already, as I said before, in Antioch, Christians, right, who value Jews in serious ways. This might push them, and he's trying to get them to really just become Jews again. What does your book teach us about Jewish-Roman relations in late antiquity? Let's skip that question. Right. Okay. There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about. It's on page 223. You write as follows. Julian seized on the confusion in the early formation of the cult in 363 to highlight the illogic of Christian veneration of Jews who had died for their laws and to drive a wedge between Christian groups. This was precisely the point he tried to make in Galileans and to realize by rebuilding the Jerusalem temple that Jews were the Judean ethnos with its attendant ancestral laws, temple, cult, and God. He tied this to imperial theology. Being a good Roman citizen meant observing one's ancestral laws by emphasizing the fact that the Maccabean martyrs died for their ancestral laws Julian reclaimed them as Judeans from the Christians who had recently begun to worship them. This would have been a powerful argument in the city of Antioch, where many Christian groups define themselves in terms of the law, the didascalia constitutions, the pseudo-Clementine homilies, and Chrysostom's homilies all demonstrate efforts to define their Christian communities in relation to Jewish law. They attest to the lure of Jer Jewish law for many Christians in Antioch. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Let me say something about the Maccabean martyrs. Um, so around the, the Maccabean martyrs are um, a, appear in 2nd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees. Right? Uh, a similar story about um, Hannah and her seven sons and Eleazar, a priest, who refuse uh, during the time of the of Antiochus IV in 164 BCE. There is this persecution of Judaism, of Jews, right? Um, and the stories there tell us that they that these people refused to uh, eat pork, right? Because Antiochus IV is trying to ban the you know Jews. Jewish uh, religion, um, and um, they were these people refuse to eat pork, right? So they like, want to keep their dietary laws. That's the story, right? In Second Maccabees and Fourth Maccabees, um, and Fourth Maccabees is believed to be written in Antioch, um, and Christians in the fourth century, particularly, look to their martyred past. Right. Oh, so, what do I mean by this? Uh, I mean that, you know, Christianity undergoes a major change from, you know, the end and even the early fourth century to a persecuted, right, people to a, uh, t t to a ruling people. And one way that they still sort of um, maintain their identity. They still look to their uh, to, to their martyred heroes in the past, and they they particularly in sites like Antioch, where supposedly the the Maccabean martyrs, these Maccabean martyrs, were taken and tortured. Um, and so, um, in the fourth century, they they claimed certain sites uh, within Antioch uh, where they believed Maccabean martyrs are buried. Um, and they turn them into cultic uh, sites of worship, right? And so the way the Christians uh, characterize them, uh, they characterize them as people who died for God, for Jesus, right? This is before Jesus, but for for their for their for their belief in God, right? That's how that's how uh, Christians understand them. Along comes Julian, right? And this 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 cult, by the way, is emerging in the Antioch in the area of Antioch. Um, in other words, it's territory, 
um, outside of the city. Um, and uh, it's being claimed by Christians, right? And he's coming along and telling these, telling these, announcing basically this site, right? It's not a Christian site. These aren't people who died, right? Just for their belief in God. They died because they kept the dietary laws. They kept Jewish dietary laws, right? Who keeps who keeps diet who keeps the dietary laws? Jews keep the dietary laws. You're venerating people who keep Jewish dietary laws. You should be keeping Jewish dietary laws. Some of them were, by the way. Some of these Christian groups were, right? Um, not many of them, probably, but there there's some, you know, and, and others who venerated Jewish law and said, you know what, we're we're worshiping these Maccabean martyrs, right? Um, they kept the dietary laws. We should keep the dietary laws. In fact, right, this plays into the whole idea of the Jewish ethnos, the Jewish people, as a vibrant community, right? A living people with living laws, not a defunct people, again, but, but a living people with living laws that, in fact, that Christians misunderstand, right? To the point where they're, 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 they're venerating Jewish heroes, not, not Christian heroes, right? And so it undermines... He basically what he's doing is he is trying to limit Christian space, right, within Antioch, the territory of Antioch, by recharacterizing areas, right? So that when Christians walk by, it'll change their perception of who they're worshiping at this at the site of the cult of Maccabean martyrs, right? Which is just emerging, by the way. But he's claiming it on behalf of Jews, right? And in an environment where you have a lot of Christian groups uh, in Antioch who venerate Jewish law, that's also, by the way, uh, we know. I'm you. I, you. I, I mentioned it in that paragraph about the pseudo Clementines, about the Apostolic Constitutions, right? The Apostolic Constitutions was likely written in the 380s in Antioch, right? Um, um, what's interesting about it is it rejects part of the Old Testament, right? Part of the law of the Old Testament, including sacrifice and other things, but accepts, right, a, much of the law there as being legitimate, something that Christians should follow, right? The pseudo-Clementines goes even further. Probably wasn't written in Antioch, not far in, in Syria, but uh, likely also had uh, people, uh, uh, sorry, likely had a number of readers and um, in Antioch, right, and churches that accepted it, which saw both Jews and Christians as basically chosen people, right? They're both accepted in their church, so long as Christians don't denigrate Jews and uh, Jews don't uh, d deny Christ, right? Uh, so there is a large group already of Christians in Antioch who are, although we're not in the 380s yet, Surely those news groups are there of people who um, value Jewish law. And so when Julian comes around and does something like this, right, that, ha that can have a real impact on how Christians understand Jews and Jewish law and undermine Christianity, obviously, undermine the message of Christian leaders, uh, you know, Gentile Christian leaders. How did Julian read and interpret the Bible and Jewish scriptures? Yeah, good question. So Julian is a Neoplatonist. He's a bit of a dilettante, but he's a Neoplatonist, right? And there are Neoplatonists well, found, I guess I should say something about Neoplatonists. Obviously, it's related to Plato. Its understanding of God is sort of a more complicated vision uh, version of Plato. Uh, I don't think I need to get into that too much. But Neoplatonists, particular people like uh, Porphyry, at the who had a role actually in the great uh, probably in the great persecution of Christians at the end of the third century, died early in the fourth century. Um, they look to the they believe that wisdom is hidden in the traditions, laws, whatever of certain ancient peoples, among them Hebrews. Okay, that means inherently that there is some value 
um, in Jewish scriptures. Um, and although Porphyry is interested in, 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 in Jewish scriptures, Julian approaches this the same way. It's not that the Hebrews or the Jews themselves, let's say, or, you know, the Egyptians, Phoenicians, whatever, understand God better, right? It's that they have, you know, traditional scriptures that uh, can be read in a way uh, that has traits of Neoplatonic, Hellenic, you know, Greek wisdom, okay? And, you know, Julian engages in interpretation of scriptures, right, in a way that he feels that he has a superior understanding of both the Jewish God and of Jewish law and scriptures than do, right, Jewish leaders, right? So he makes statements like, now you have a, well, the Bible is amazing. You know, Jews are just like us, elites, just like the Greeks, just like us Neoplatonist Greeks, right? Um, they have, uh, you know, ancient texts, they have, uh, ancient laws, right? They which includes sacrifice and dietary laws. By the way, the Neoplatonists were big into that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and uh, various other things. They just have this one major picadillo that he, he has with them, and that is they understand their God to be the only God, right? Julian is going to work with that, rework that idea. He's going to say, you just you prophets and, and exegetes, Jewish exegetes, you just don't understand your God, right? Who I believe he equates with uh, the Neoplatonist God, his God, Helios, right? A certain sort of uh, manifestation of Helios, right? But you just don't understand your scriptures, right? Um, and so he is engaging, right, almost like a researcher uh, in uh, Jewish scripture, right? with a Neoplatonist agenda, right? Taking out what he wants from scripture, interpreting them in ways that will make Jews really fit into his empire. Some people claim, right, uh, as scholars have claimed in the past that Julian is not really a friend to the Jews, right? He was going to recharacterize them, rebrand them, right? Um, and, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, Jews might not recognize, right? Um, but that's sort of, he engages uh, Jewish scriptures as if he, he's a scholar. And I would say more than that, he also challenges Christian interpretation of scriptures, their methodology. Um, but that's about all I want to say on that for the moment. How would you evaluate Julian's political judgment and tactical acumen as a leader? Good question. Julian's uh I think he's a highly intelligent person, first of all, very dedicated to his, his craft, to, 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 you know, to his beliefs, um, you know, lived like a philosopher, um, a Neoplatonist philosopher, sort of a, almost, almost an ascetic, um, and, um, had a vision of what he wanted to accomplish and how he was going to go about doing it. Okay. Um, and then I'll evaluate it in a moment. Okay. So. Uh, his vision was he was going to remake the empire back into a pagan empire, but a particular with a Neoplatonist theurgic flair, right? How was he going to do this? Well, he had to undermine Christianity. Um, and, right, one way of doing it was not to openly persecute them, but, but basically uh, undermine Jesus, uh, undermine sort of basic Christian beliefs, um, one way of doing that, and a major way of doing that, was unleashing his own brand of Jewish Jew Judaism on Christianity, right? Like recharacterizing Jews as an ethnic group, right? Which they were, uh, and uh, making that happen, right? By rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, resettling Jews in Jerusalem, right? And undermining Christian claims like that the temple would never be rebuilt, right? Uh, you know. Jesus, undermining Jesus' bona fides, uh, fides as a uh, prophet, let alone Messiah, you know, let alone Son of God, right? Um, and um, the problem that, that he had was 
Oh, and one other thing he wanted to do. He was going to lead a campaign against Persia to really start it with Constantine and continue uh, it continues long after him. Uh, but he was going to defeat the Persians, the Persian Empire, right? At that time, um, the Sassanid Persian Empire. Um, and he was going to do that and prove that his vision of the cosmos, that his god, Helios, was the true god, right? And uh, that was going to be his god of fighting, right? Uh, and getting other people to, to, to follow him and his and his belief system, right? So, right, um, evaluating him. Well, he made a number of mistakes. Um, one was that he, when he entered Antioch, uh, there were all, it was all kind, he underestimated Christian resistance. Um, he mishandled a, a, a food crisis there. Um, he appeared to be a crazy ascetic to people. He didn't relate to them well. Um, and he, um, and then of course he loses in Persia, which further undermines him. I think, right, right. In the end, he only rules for a year and a half. Uh, it's hard to, you know, if he had lived as long as Constantine, for instance, I think he might've done, it's a real watershed moment, I think, uh, in history. He might have done uh, uh, quite a bit of harm to Christianity, um, and actually, you know, changed uh, Judaism as well to, to some extent. Um, but he wasn't as effective as he needed to be because he miscalculated. He didn't really understand people as well as he thought he did, and that really, that really made a mess of his plans. Why did Julian perceive Christianity as a threat? How is his perception of rising Christianity as a threat similar or different from previous emperors of Rome? Okay. Um, I already talked about this, but maybe I'll just sort of hone in on it again. Um, but Christianity was a threat to Julian for you know similar reasons to why Christianity was a threat to pagan Rome in the centuries before Constantine. And that is, right, that this goes back to who are you worshiping? Who's the... What guarantees the success and health of the Roman Empire? And that is the correct worship of the gods. And according to paganism, whether it's Neoplatonic paganism or you know, any other paganism, right? Every people in the empire have to, there's a place for every god in the empire. Remember, paganism far more tolerant than uh, monotheism, um, right? It doesn't require people to change, right, who they worship. Yes, maybe you accept, you, you should accept. The, um, the Roman emperor cult, right? But you could still worship your gods. Um, and, and the Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire, built an empire with this idea. They're uh, not the only ones to do it. Right? I think the Persians, um, the Athamanid Empire had done things like this, right? The, the belief that you can, um, a healthy empire is one in which everybody keeps their laws, appeases their gods, and keeps peace. That'll keep peace in the empire. Okay. So why is Christianity a threat? Because it eats away at the um, ethnic uh, viability of these peoples, of the different peoples in the empire. It lures people away from their ethnic laws, gods, right? Practices, right? A worship. And so undermines um Underpoints these the worship of these gods. Um, what was the continuation of your question? So, how does Julian differ from them? I think. Yeah, what are the similarities between I mean, so, Julian's perceptions of Christianity and previous Roman empires? Julian is basically the same thing as these uh, as these pagans, right? He's trying to reintroduce, right, re-stimulate pagan worship of their gods. However, he is different because he has a particular way that he wants all these particular groups to worship, uh, which is not all that different. They don't all need to understand, you know, uh, that there is uh, ultimately this one supreme God above everyone else. Okay, we'd like them to believe that uh, that Helios, the sun god, is the is that god. Uh, but really, I you know, he needs them to worship in ways... Um, that he needs them to worship, and he believes very much in sacrifice. So, 
Um, that's not all that different than pagans used to do either, but it's a different kind of emphasis, I suppose, or a particular a particular emphasis by hand on reconvening these ethnic groups, rebuilding their temples, right, which he does, and trying to get them to sacrifice again. Like there had been, by the way, a real sort of drop off in uh, sacrificial culture um, in the fourth century, probably starts in the third century as well. Um, so he's trying to re-energize that movement. Why is the legacy of Julian relevant in the year 2023? Okay, good question. Well, I would say this goes back to some of the more interesting parts of the sort of main message of the book. It's understanding ultimately anti-Semitism, although uh, Christian anti-Semitism, although anti-Semitism is, uh, is a later sort of, uh, we'll call it anti-Judaism, right? Um, it's understanding Christian identity as a constructed, um, what I call it, phenomena. Everything is constructed, but as a particular, and how it was constructed, why it was constructed with this very anti-Jewish flavor to it. Of course, there are, you know, anti-Jewish elements in the Gospels um, and pronouncements, you know, by various church fathers before, right? The fourth century. But why does the empire, a Christian empire emerging in the fourth century, particularly in the late fourth century, so vehemently anti-Jewish, right? Uh, why do they introduce anti-Jewish laws, right? Why do they, um, why does somebody like Chrysostom paint Jews as dangerous, as devils, as right, at Jewish space, uh, like like synagogues as places that the, you know, where the, where the devil lives, right? Um, it's to create orthodoxy, right? In a way, and, and to do that, they have to, you know, bind the barricades, right? They have to, um, they have to respond to Julian's attempt to make Jews a living, breathing, dangerous element that can attract Christians back to Jews, right? And so they're going to elim eliminate all kinds of heretical movements. They literally have to pull Christians away from Jews. And how do you do that? You create, you recreate yeah, Judaism as a defunct religion. You you double down on that. Um, you, um, you, you stop Christians from going to synagogues by saying these are places of devil worship, right? Um, you do everything that you can right, uh, to um, in reinforce this vision of Judaism as other, um, as dangerous, as, um, and, and really the goal is to strengthen Orthodox Christianity and emerging Orthodox Christianity, which, you know, although exempts the Old Testament, really has nothing to do with uh, Jews and Judaism, right? Um, and delegitimizes Jews completely, and again to pull Christians away from Jews, and that if you know if you're asking about 2023, um, that's important for I think for Christians to realize, you know what lie partially what lies at, on the basis for some of this very um, anti-Jewish sort of beliefs that run throughout history, anti-Jewish sort of feelings, animus that runs throughout history. And leads obviously to persecution and all the things like that. Why? How did Julian become interested in Greek philosophy? Well, that has to go with his up. Has to do with his upbringing. I think you know you could speculate about the psychology of Emperor Julian. You know, when Constantine takes over, uh, one of the first things that he does is, like many people, he take over after he eliminates his contenders. Right. So his brother's family, his brother's family, uh, is eliminated, right? Julian and his half-brother um, are kept alive uh, and sent off for Christian education. And um, this Christian education that they have, I mean, initially he's studying with a mentor who he really, you know, grows to love, um, who's really, who really teaches them all the basics of Homer, right? That's what everybody studied, right? Before Christianity fully takes hold of the empire. I mean, the full Christianization of the empire will, to some extent, um, 
Christianized education too. But what people have been studying for years, uh, you know, the basis of rhetoric and uh, literature and all kinds of culture is is Homer uh, and um, and you know Greek mythology and all that kind of stuff. Even though they don't believe in the Greek gods, so he falls in love with this stuff, and then he's taken away from this guy. His name is Mardonius, his teacher, and he's goes off and, and, and studies Christianity and he resents that he's not allowed to leave the place, right? These people also probably killed my parents. Maybe that's what he's thinking, whatever. Um, and um, so, you know, this this turns into a great love of Christianity and he also, uh, sorry, of, of, of Greek culture, married with this sort of inherent complicated feelings towards Christianity and then sort of looks at the Christian sort of understanding of the cosmos and says, this doesn't make any sense, right? Um, um, and pushes him towards Neoplatonism. Um, Neoplatonist, you know, leaders, and um, he becomes their disciple. How did John Chrysostom view Jews? Can you elaborate on his statements regarding Jews and Judaism in his writings? Why did he perceive Jews this way? Yeah, so I mean, I partially answered this, but John Chrysostom is a uh, rose up in or spends uh, I'm not sure where he was born actually, but he spends his early years in Antioch and becomes a priest there. He doesn't become a bishop. Uh, he's transferred to Constantinople where he becomes a bishop. Um, and he studies with actually with many, where many were all the leading lights of the uh, fourth century studied with a, a, um, a guy named Libanius, with whom uh, Julian probably ever Julian certainly had good relations, um, and but becomes he, what does he study? He studies you know philosophy basically and rhetoric and all the things that leaders within the uh, that the Roman world uh, would need to lead. In fact, they're also, you know, the sons of the Jewish patriarch go and study with, with Libanius as well. But Chrysostom, who's particularly talented in rhetoric, goes off and, and he, he's a Christian. And, um, and growing up as an adolescent, he's living in Antioch when Julian is living there. He is direct witness to Julian's rhetoric, right? Uh, particularly his uh, using Jews against Christians, right? And so when he becomes a priest now in the 380s, right, Theodosius II is emperor. Theodosius uh, uh, introduces the Cuctus Populus, which is basically declaring that Nicene Christianity, we'll call proto-Catholic Catholic Christianity, is orthodoxy. And John Chrysostom is a priest in Antioch at this time, or becomes a priest in Antioch soon after, right? And Antioch has a very complicated Christian scene. There are at least four different bishops in Antioch of four different groups. He is, right, uh, under Miletius, right, the, um, and Flavian actually, uh, the, um, he's not bishop, but, uh, uh, under these bishops of the Nicene faction. So the Theodosius II's faction, right? Um, and he sees what's going on in his church. He sees that there are all kinds of Christians, you know, going to synagogue, you know, studying the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, taking oaths, right, in uh, and forcing their people to take oaths in the Jewish synagogue, Christians doing this because they believe that uh, the ark, uh, the ark that's there with the scrolls of the Old Testament, right, written in the original Hebrew, is more holy than any kind of New Testament, which is a book, right, written in Greek, right, or uh, right, um, and so and so they and they celebrate festivals with Jews, and he's looking at this phenomena, and he sees the problem, and so. Right. Also, I believe in carrying out the, the uh, mission, right, of Theodosius II in a way uh, to undermine heretics, um, to enforce this over time, this Orthodox Christianity 
How do you do that? You have to pull these Christians away from Jews. All these Christians who have positive relationships with Jewish law, right? They're also, uh, some of these Christians are keeping dietary law or some of them even uh, ritual purity. Uh, we know that from, from uh, other things written in the 380s in Antioch, like the Apostolic Constitutions, right? Um, and so he demonizes Jews. He demonizes the synagogue, right? He gets them, right? He uh, goes back to Julian and says, ha, you failed, <laughs> right? This, this proves Jesus, right? Jesus said it wouldn't be rebuilt, right? right? Um, and um, so this is sort of the source of his animus. And it's a tactic. How do we know it's a tactic? Because he later says, uh, you know, I tried. <laughs> I tried to pull Christians away from Jews, right? By using, doing all this stuff. It didn't work, but it's the beginning of this, right? Uh, it's the beginning of this. And and uh, and it'll take time to root, uh, to root out Jewish Christians, to, to change the relationship between Jews and Christians, Antioch and other places, not just Antioch, but, right? But uh, it's the these efforts can be explained by what's going on there and the particular political situation of the time. Can you tell us about the image on your front cover? Can you interpret yeah. it for us? Yeah, that picture I have of Helios um, holding a whip and an orb uh, of the world in one hand and a rays of the sun coming out. This is Helios, right? Um, this is an image that was found in a synagogue um, in Tiberias, just outside of Tiberias, in a place called Samat Tiberias, or the the, um, the the warm baths of, of Tiberias. Um, and it's a really interesting synagogue, right? Because you have, first of all, you have a depiction of, of Heliopos. Well, I'll tell you why I think it's Helios in a moment. Um, this the son of the son of God, right? Of the Roman Empire. And you have a, a calendar underneath, right? A zodiac. Um, and uh, you have uh, on top of the, that, it, you have a picture of probably the the temple, right? With, you know, um, a lulav, right? Uh, um, what do you call that in English again? A lulav? It's what, what, what Jews use a palm branch, right? Um, uh, uh, what else? A, a shovel pan, right? For use. Uh, that the, the priests use, right, for sacrifice, incense shovel, that's what it's called, and uh, various other uh, various other items depicted there. And you have inscriptions in Greek, right, one showing that they are connected to the, um, highly connected to the, to the Jewish patriarch, right, in Tiberias, right? So this is not somewhere where, you know, you've got your average Joe Jew uh, going to, uh, going to pray, this is sort of a highly connected synagogue. And what's astounding about it is it has an image, right? Uh, a fit in the front, which, you know, counters uh, interpretation or many interpretations of Jewish law that you're not supposed to depict images, certainly of gods, right? So what is this whole thing about, right? And there's a scholar, Lee Levine, uh, in Israel, who's written on this. Actually, many people have written on it. Um, and has uh, said this is likely created in the 360s. It's probably in support of Julian's efforts to rebuild the temple, right? Um, how can Jews then, you know, go and attend a synagogue like this uh, with a depiction of Helios? Well, Julian's vision of Helios is, was the same as the Jewish God, right? Um, well, exactly, but Jews could accept that maybe, right? that this interpretation of no images hasn't always been true in uh, in, uh, in Jewish interpretation so that they could accept that, right? Um, and the other thing about Helios is that Helios is related to Apollo, right? Apollo and Helios are the gods of the Constantine dynasty, right? Constantine worships Apollo, and Helios, right? Slash Helios. Uh, even while he declared his relationship 
to uh, allegiance to uh, the Christian God. And there's some marrying of the two, right? That goes on in Constantine's time between these between these gods, um, syncing two gods together. And so, so we have other images like that. Um, and so this is like an interesting story, right? Because we know also that there's a letter that um, Julian writes to the Jews, which he mentions that he's been in contact with the Jewish patriarch, right? Um, and there is some indication, right? The letter's not entirely clear about this because it could also be seen a little bit differently, but then he was trying to get Jews on board, including the Jewish patriarch, right? And this synagogue, if it was created at this time, right, um, was certainly created in the fourth century, um, very possibly during Julian's time, suggests that there is Jewish support, Jewish leaders' support for Julian's program, right, of rebuilding the temple, right, um, which is also which is all very interesting. Also, because of course we have really no Jewish sources that speaks to this period, right? should say something maybe about that too for a second. Yes, please uh, do. So we have possible allusions in the Jerusalem Talmud uh, to uh, this instance of Julian and his plans for Jews. Um, but there's very little there, right? Also, we have to rem we should remember that, you know, look, or most of our, our sources about Jews are archeological. Antioch, unfortunately, has undergone so many um, earthquakes, including, by the way, recently, Antioch, which was the capital of Syria, right, uh, is actually in uh, Antakya, Turkey, right, has been subject to many earthquakes, including completely destroyed recently, right? So uh, it sits on Mount Silpius, right, or at least that's what it was called then, and lots of earthquakes. It's on the... Uh, uh, What's it called? The the rift. The uh, I can't remember the term right now, right? But it's that it's that rift that goes down to the Dead Sea, right? Um, and there's just an incredible history of earthquakes in that region. So it's it's largely been destroyed. But archaeology um, and Christian sources, right? And then we have Julian also, but Christian sources about Jews, right? And particularly Chrysostom and his depiction of what Jews are doing and um, a lot of Jewish sources, unfortunately. Jews stopped writing history after Josephus in the first century, or at least we don't have anything else that they've written. Um, so um, this, you know, I think this is a really interesting, this arch archaeological find in Chama Tiberius, a very interesting find. Thank you for sharing. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book. Can you tell us about any subsequent projects you've engaged in? Yeah, I am working now well into uh, writing a book about a Christian chronicler in the sixth century. It's funny, I started off in the Second Temple, studying the Second Temple period. I published a little bit in it. Um, and then I moved to the fourth century. And now I'm in the sixth century. Why John Mullis? Well, my, but my first draw to John Mahalas, he's a Christian, I'll say something about him. He's a, a Christian world chronicler living in the time of Justinian um, and before him as well, right? But Justinian. And um, at, at this period, what drew me to him initially was somebody asked me to write an article about him because he, he, he's been used as a source sometimes for Jewish history as well. He has some things to say about uh, persecution of Jews in Antioch in the 6th century. Somebody asked to read, me to write an article on that, and I found some really interesting stuff in John Malalas, right, about how he's using Jews. So again, his depiction of Jews. In his case, right, we're past now. We're a fully Christianized empire, right? Uh, we're past Jews as a threat. They've been put down, right? And, uh, and uh, he is using Jews, interestingly enough, to um, calm Christian fears that the end of the eschaton, the end of days is here, right? A lot of Christians are worried based on all kinds of calculations that have been done and accepted that the end of the world is happening in the late fifth, early sixth century, and Jesus is going to come back and, ju and judge everybody. Um, and so there are all kinds of wars and disease and 
you know, famines and all kinds of, you know, drought and all kinds of things like that, that uh, coupled with this calculation that lead people to think, to think that. And I'm showing that he uses Jews to uh, show that they remain a persecuted people, right? That, and um, they're particularly ar arguing with a group of, of Syrian Christians, Syriac-speaking Christians. Um, and there are groups in Syria who always believed that one of the things that's going to happen at the end of the days is that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to rebuild the temple, reinstitute uh, Jewish sacrifice, right? Um, right? Some people believe Julian was an Antichrist, right? So, um, uh, right, that's not happening, not only that, but, you know, Jews were once the uh, people of the covenant, uh, God spurned them, and guess what? They're still being persecuted today, right? And, and so that's part of, I'm arguing of his argument, Whatever he does this, by the way, it's always within a year of when people are speculating the end of time is calculated, the end of the world is coming, right? Because when the one, right, when, when when an event passes and the end of the world doesn't happen, what do the people, what do the people do? They recalculate. And every time there's a new date, he shows the Jews remain persecuted. Well, that's what I'm interested in, in, in his sort of uh, use or construction of uh, Jews and his use of Jews his own goals. Uh, the other thing about Mal, John Malus is he is a uh, his work is used by subsequent world chronicles chroniclers, um, and world chroniclers were probably the main way that Christians got their his history. We'll call it history, right? For millennia, for millennium, anyway, um, right up until you know even the modern period, right. These world chronicles keep writing, uh, keep writing chronicles, and Christians learn about history from them. Right, so his depiction of Jews is interesting, to say the least. And Malus is used, so it has some impact on Christianity as well, and how they view Jews. Amazing! That sounds absolutely fascinating. Oh, uh, that sounds phenomenal. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Ari Finkelstein. He is associate professor in the Department of Judaic Studies at the University of Cincinnati. We've been discussing his newly published book, the Spectre of the Jews, Emperor Julian, and the Rhetoric of Ethnicity in Antioch, published in Berkeley by University of California Press, 2018. Thank you. Thank you.